Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Today, our episode comes from our most recent annual conference, Rebuilding the Economy After the Pandemic, Challenges and Avenues for Reform. We will pick up from where we left off last week and discuss fiscal policy and tax reform with Dan Sullivan. Dan Sullivan is a Georgia scholar, former president of the Council of Georgia's Organizations, and director of Saving Communities, a Pennsylvania-based organization that promotes fiscal integrity and economic justice. We were lucky enough to talk with Dan, who spoke to us about the role of credit in the economy, economic health protections, and fiscal resilience. We hope you enjoy this talk, and make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Basically, um, the lockdown, the virus is a threat to physical health, and the lockdown is a threat to economic, mental, and social health. Um, It's caused incentives to, it's created incentives to riot. A lot of people have said maybe the unrest we've had is because people were cooped up and weren't allowed to go out, but but if they went out to protest for social justice, suddenly that was acceptable where nothing else was. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, and there's been a greater distrust of institutions because of it. So, um, so in terms of the physical health, um, the, even the physical health, it's mostly uh, reducing contagion. That's the, that's the whole point of the lockdown is to reduce contagion, but it also reduces vitality. And, um, you know, sitting indoors all the time reduces um, vitality. And so these things never, official sources never discussed these. They never discussed you know, they never re- recommended th- things you could do. There was a, a just a single uh, stay locked down until we get the vaccine and then get the vaccine. Um, and I'll, I'll go through this quickly because my main thing is the economics. But uh, the comorbidities of the virus, um, age, there's nothing you can do about age. I tried to be younger and it didn't work. Um, but obesity, lack of exercise, vitamin deficiency, smoking and drinking, and then there's various other diseases, but all those other diseases are um, enhanced, I guess is the word, by obesity, lack of exercise, vitamin deficiency, and smoking and drinking. And the um, so why during this two years did almost nobody tell us that that it's worthwhile to lose weight, that it's worthwhile to exercise. The vitamin C and D, particularly D, um, are, are important. Zinc is important. To quit smoking and drinking if, you, if possible. In Pennsylvania, the liquor stores remained open. They, uh, you know, the churches were closed. A lot of things were closed, but the liquor stores were open. Um, and, um, And like I said, I was thrown in Facebook jail from the last talk, thrown in Facebook jail for uh, talking about the importance of vitamin D. One of the problems is you get vitamin D from sunshine. 
And to get sunshine, you have to go outside. And if you go outside, you're in violation of the lockdown, especially in places like New York City, where there's not a lot of where there's not a lot of room for everybody to be outside at once because it's such a high density city. And same with Paris and Tokyo and many other cities. But the, the need to be outside or else to take um, a heavy dosage of vitamin D has finally been recognized as not a right-wing conspiracy theory after all. Um, and so, um, so those are things that strangely we didn't hear about, but I wanna talk about economic comorbidities. Um, the first one is artificial debt. You know, all of our money is loaned into circulation by, well, not all of it, but 95% of the money in circulation, and it might have gone down a little bit with the stimulus, but um, most of the money in circulation was loaned into circulation by commercial banks. The, I'm not talking about the money the Federal Reserve lends to the banks because that is primarily to meet their liquidity requirements. And uh, that's not the money that circulates. It, it doesn't circulate until you go and withdraw cash. And that's 5% of the money supply. And then the other 95 is basically bank credits. And um, the, the, other is, the other big one is land monopoly because land monopoly creates artificially high rents and the uh, artificial, Especially high rents make it much more difficult for people to save that and the, and the money monopoly kind of combined to do that. Um, monopoly prices, um, we, we heard a little bit about pharmaceutical prices and health insurance prices. There are other monopoly prices as well that I will go into, but the pharmaceuticals and the health insurance have our direct attention. And so in addition to addressing the debt and the land monopoly, I want to address uh, various monopoly prices and do it with as little government takeover as possible. Um, Henry George was always for finding a market solution and finding that quite often when people say the market isn't working, you can quote Henry George showing that the market didn't work because government had granted privileges. Um, for economic health, okay, if we had few, full reserve banking, full reserve banking means the banks do not create any money. They do not create credit and lend it out. Um, they lend entirely from deposits. Well, how would the banks have any money to lend? And the, the answer is the Federal Reserve can create money and lend it to the banks. And that way the Federal Reserve actually controls without manipulating interest rates or anything, but just by saying, this is how much money we will lend you. And um, this is the Chicago plan. Um, Paul Douglas and um, Irving, uh, Irving Fisher uh, were the primary sponsors of this in the 30s. It was something FDR um, wanted to do, but couldn't, couldn't overcome the banks to do it. So he did what he could with it. Um, but the idea is that government creates the money through deficit spending or by lending it to banks or by giving it on a per capita basis to people, um, which is what the basic income people like. 
And, um, and it can only do that if it prevents banks from, from creating credit that they commingle with, with money. And if anybody can create credit, but that credit does not show up in your bank account as a US dollar unless you have the privilege of, of fractional reserve banking. Um, the next one, of course, is land value tax, which most Georgists know about, because when you have land value tax, you, you deflate artificially high rents. All the, all the land that's held for speculation, either unused or in a state of serious underuse, um, starts to come on the market as you increase the land value tax. And that creates more jobs. That makes it um, less profitable to go overseas because what are you going to do with your old factory in Detroit if you're paying a land value tax on it? Um, and uh, when you start taxing land value, you can end the subsidies and and the productivity taxes. The productivity taxes are what you replace with land value tax. And the subsidies, when you look at economic subsidies, things we usually call corporate welfare, because the last subsidy I would have is welfare for the, would get rid of is welfare for the poor. Um, if you do these other things, poverty will disappear and you won't need welfare for the poor. But as long as you have um, a system that keeps people systematically poor, then, then you need that. And uh, I always say poor people do not have their, a, a fair share of the earth. So the welfare they get is kind of like a really ham-fisted compensation for them having to pay rent to be on the planet. Um, and the next thing I would say is to end, end monopolies and uh, start with pharmaceuticals and health insurance. Um, you know, nobody, nobody, we have two sides. One side, the, the right wing says the free market is just fine and, and just live with it. And the left wing says government has to take it over because the free market doesn't work. And the original progressives, which Henry George was probably the original progressive, um, said, well, let's find out what's wrong with these, what's causing these monopolies. And with pharmaceuticals, there's an artificial, um, they have basically captured the FDA. So the Food and Drug Administration is regulated by the people it's regulating and it requires testing that is done. You know, the pharmaceutical company does its own testing to show that its own product is good. Nobody tests public domain products. There's a lot of things that are on the market that the patents have expired and they find a new use for them and, and they never get tested and therefore they are not approved for that new use. Um, health insurance has, has violates what we would call restraint of trade. And restraint of trade is um, if you were Walmart and you were buying bicycles and you're such a big consumer of bicycles that you can say to that bicycle manufacturer, you have to charge me 20% less than you charge anybody else. Well, it's one thing for a Walmart to say, this is how much we are willing to pay, but it's restraint of 
trade when Walmart says, you must charge other people more than you're charging me. Now, Walmart can legally say, you can't charge other people less than you're charging me. We won't buy your bicycles if you're selling them to other people for less than you're selling them to us. But it's a restraint of trade. It's part of the antitrust legislation for you to say, if you're selling these bicycles to me for $100, you have to sell them to my competitors for $120. You're not allowed to do that. That's what... Um, that's what uh, Rockefeller, with what Standard Oil did with the independent oil companies, made the railroads charge more to the other people than they were charging Rockefeller and also got kickbacks. But that's like icing on the cake for that. So health insurance, one of the reasons health insurance has gotten so expensive is because it, it words this as a discount, but it really ends up as a forced overcharge. So if I get my teeth cleaned and my insurance company pays for it, it's $60. If I get my teeth, or it's $50. If, my, if I get my teeth cleaned and I pay for it myself, it's $80. Well, that makes me willing to overpay for the insurance because if I don't have the insurance, I have to overpay for everything directly. And they've allowed some exceptions for poor people who couldn't have afforded insurance anyhow, but in general, the insurance companies have um, pressured the, the healthcare providers to overcharge the uninsured. That does not make insurance cheaper. It actually makes insurance more expensive because you're willing to pay more because you know you'll get overcharged without it. And that's, that's a, a non-socialist progressive approach to uh, improving health insurance. Um, there's some other ones too, but uh, there are other things like that. Amazon does has a, a way past the past the restraint of trade uh, provision. When when if I if I'm selling bicycles and Amazon wants to to sell them, I list them. You know, if I'm selling it if if I want, if I want a hundred dollars for my bicycle, I have to list it on Amazon for one hundred and fifteen dollars because Amazon charges fifteen percent roughly to uh, process the sale. Well, I am not allowed to sell it on eBay for less than one hundred and fifteen dollars. I'm not allowed to sell it on my own website for less than one hundred and fifteen dollars. Now I only get a hundred dollars in any case. If I was selling it to Walmart for $100, I would sell it to Walmart. They would give me the $100. And I could sell it to any supermarket or, or department store for $100. Hi, cat. <laughs> My cat wants something. I don't know what. Um, but, um, but anyhow, the... Um, the restraint of trade provision was very good at, at preventing the competitive monopolization. And we have basically lost that. Um, Amazon, if Amazon's gonna charge a 15% markup and I'm gonna get $100, the restraint of trade should be a $100 restraint of trade at the price I'm getting, not a $115 restraint of trade at the price Amazon's getting. So I can sell it on eBay for $115 
I can put it on my web, on website for $115, but I am not allowed, I misspelled Amazon, didn't I? Oh, well. And, uh, but I'm not allowed to put it on my own website for $100 or $105. So that is, um, that's an end run around the restraint of trade laws that the, that the um, early progressives championed. Um, so we have, the other one is right-of-way monopolies. And Henry George said, you know, the right-of-way itself should be publicly owned. So that means the roads are public, that's fine. Water and sewer is usually public, but it's not always. Um, and the roads now, they're violating a lot of common law principles by leasing roads to uh, people who, leasing toll roads to companies that are raising the rates because they didn't have the political will to raise the rates themselves. And that really sold the taxpayer down the river. Um, but um, it also applies to cable TV and to, um, and to uh, internet connections. And in a way it applies to airports because the airports are government owned, but quite often the, the major commercial airports are government owned, but quite often the airport enters into a monopoly relationship with one or two airlines and gives them a much better deal than it gives other people. And those, those airlines have an advantage of that um, in that. And, it's, and they are, end up not being cheaper at all. Um, so um, so that's what, that's what I think we should, that's the core of what we should do. And this is the core of what we should do in general. When I talked about the comorbidities and positive steps you can take, those were not steps to attack the virus. You know, it's not that vitamin D kills the virus. It's not that um, exercise kills the virus. It's that if you make yourself healthy generally, you can withstand the virus better. And the point of these prescriptions are if you make your economy healthy generally, it can better withstand something like a lockdown. So, um, so that's, that's the approach I'm taking. Now, I wanted to talk about some mistakes already made. Um, one of them is stimulus money. And the problem with stimulus money is that it just went to everybody. It went to people who were not harmed by the lockdown. It was meant to people who were getting rich during the lockdown because if you worked for Amazon, you got stimulus money, you know? And if you owned Amazon, you got stimulus money. It's, or if you own shares of Amazon, you got stimulus money. So the stimulus money should have gone to the damaged companies the damaged companies were the most harmed. This is Paul Krugman made this point. He said, when we have, you know, a hurricane or a flood or something, we don't give relief to people who weren't hit by the hurricane. We give the relief to the people who were damaged. And that's morally the, what, what it sh we should have done. Um, the, the other thing, this is kind of the opposite of 2008, because in 2008, we probably should have given the money to the public and the public would have paid off their mortgages and the banks would have been fine. 2008, um, 
was a financial depression. The, we did not actually increase the money supply in 2008. What we did was increased the supply of government money to offset the severe contraction of bank money. So the bank credit, the bank stopped making loans because they said, we see this depression coming. And so we stopped making loans and then the depression comes. It probably would have come anyhow, but the depression hits much harder because the banks stop making loans and the and the, as you pay off the old loans, the money supply is disappearing. The old you liquidate the money when you pay off the old loans. And and when nobody's taking new loans, nothing makes up for that. So the money supply was rapidly disappearing. And in 2008, we did massive stimulus spending. And we did that the wrong way. We gave that money to the banks. We bailed out the banks. We did not bail out the people who couldn't pay their mortgages. If we had bailed out the people who couldn't pay their mortgages, they would have paid the banks. The banks would have been fine. So, um, or if we had just given money to everybody, it would have found its way to the people who couldn't pay their mortgages. So what we did, in, what we did for this stimulus is what we should have done in 2008. And what we did in 2008 is what we should have done in this this time, because we have more money, but less things to buy. You know, we cut production. We had, uh, you know, one of the reasons meat got expensive is because the, the, there was contagion among the meat cutters. The people working in the packing plants were coming down with COVID and, and people were afraid that COVID would, would uh, uh, transmit through the meat, which we now know isn't true. But for a good while, there was a really big reduction in su supply of meat packing because of that. And lumber, the um, the lumber mills were running at half capacity because they were social distancing, and you can't you can't run as efficiently when you have fewer people. And and um, so so. So that was part of it. The other part of it is a lot of restaurants that the, the successful restaurants said, well, this would be a great time to remodel the dining room. And especially if you look at fast food restaurants that kept their drive through windows open, a lot of them, you look inside and they're ripping out the inside of the restaurant because They've always wanted to remodel the restaurant and they couldn't because they didn't want to shut down the dining room. So dining room, so you have this big increase in demand for lumber. You have a, a, a lower supply of lumber and, um, and that creates lumber in that one particular industry. But we've had general inflation and, uh, and I, think, I think people have bought into the MMT nonsense. Now the N MMT nonsense is it's based on half truths because MMT, what MMT is, says to do is exactly what worked in 2008. They just pumped the economy full of money and they said, well, there was no inflation. There was no of these terrible things, but the economy turned around. Well, yeah, because you weren't increasing the total money supply. You were just offsetting the decrease in bank credit. Um, so that, um, 
that notion that you can do this whenever you want, which is what MMT people um, tend to push, and you can do it in really big ways, is what makes it not a good idea. Um, Henry George was a greenbacker, and somebody said to him, well, do you think, does that mean you can just print however much money you need to spend on whatever you want to spend it on? And Henry George said, sir, I am a greenbacker. I am not a fool. And um, real monetary reform very carefully restricts the supply of bank money if to offset increases in the supply of um, government money. And so the net, if you look historically, we've had um, since the 70s, the, the inflation got out of hand in the late seven, in the mid to late 70s. But ever since then, we've had inflation of around um, 3%, rarely went over four or five, uh, rarely went under one. And that inflation means that the in the aggregate, which means including the bank money and the, and the government money, we were creating about as much money as we could afford to. Now, one of the things that made, made it worse, made the recessions worse, was this notion that the government had to have a balanced budget because when the government has a balanced budget, all the increase in the money supply comes from bank money, which means that personal debt skyrockets. And the big difference between government debt and personal debt is if the government doesn't actually sell bonds or you know, if the Federal Reserve holds the bonds and doesn't sell them out into the market, that debt doesn't have to be paid. And so you know, four or five years ago, a third of the debt was, was debt that the Federal Reserve could have just forgiven that debt and it would have made zero difference. So, um, so that's, that's where, you know, stimulus money, you can do it if you, if you curtail bank lending. The first thing we had was an asset bubble. And that asset bubble was largely because, wasn't just because we were getting stimulus money and we've got stimulus money during the Trump administration too. Um, it wasn't just due to the stimulus money. It was due to the fact that people would use their stimulus money for a down payment and the banks would lend them um, major amounts to, to buy a new home or, or to buy a new car or whatever. So the stimulus was creating, was creating spending and it was creating spending on assets, not on consumer products. I guess a car is a consumer product, but the big one is um, businesses and uh, home mortgages. So that's um, the other mistake that we made was we had extended unemployment and we made the benefits unusually generous. And so it was much more profitable to get 80% of your wages and stay home because you don't have to spend money getting to work and stuff. And the result was that people avoided going to work. Um, and we see even now people are, you know, there's help wanted signs everywhere and they're not going to work. And now we have, we do have, uh, we still have lower production and now we're getting high prices. And, um, and, and why did this happen? 
again, it's um, there's no shortage of bank credit. The stimulus was used for the down payments. It created asset bubbles. Asset bubbles interfere with production because if you want to buy a piece of land to put a factory on to produce, you have to bid more for that land because you're competing with the with the speculators who are buying it for the asset bubble. And um, the stimulus was given to consumers, not producers. Um, and there was a lack of product to buy and inflation resulted. And we're saying, we're saying that it's a 6%. Well, we look a year back and that gives us a lag time. Um, if you look at what happened, you know, in last November, we had a negative inflation. The previous months, we had a low inflation normal. And December was an exceptionally low inflation. And then beginning in January, now this is per month, and it's more volatile per month, but it's, it's per month as amortized as what it would be per year. If, if, that, if the inflation that month continued for a whole year, what would the inflation be? So we see that it's gonna be higher than 6% because we're still averaging in um, December and January, which were low. And the only low month after that is August and September. The rest of them were all around 6% or higher. And some of them, you know, we've had inflation months that were, um, we had one that was almost 12%. We had two other ones that were over 10%. So that's, that's it's not just the stimulus, but it's the stimulus during a, a lockdown and recovery from a lockdown where the people didn't have a shortage of money. There was just a shortage of products to buy with the money. Now, how could the stimulus work? Um, if you curtailed the bank credit and you targeted bank loans, it says payments. Well, you target the stimulus payments to those harmed, but you also give loan, loan preferences to those harmed. We will lend you money to keep your restaurant going or, or whatever. You abolish the mortgage preferences because they've always been, people think that the government is helping you buy a home by having preferential mortgage rates. And what, what it's really doing is causing the homes to sell for more in the first place. Those advantages get capitalized into the price of the home. And if you cut taxes on productivity, those restaurants that were in trouble should be able to pay off their loans. And if you tax those hoarded assets, which is mostly land value tax, but there's some other ones, patents get hoarded. Uh, you can have a self-assessed patent value tax. We'll talk about, we'll make that a, a complete separate session because it's an interesting way to do that. Um, but that, that combination would make things profitable so that the person who had to borrow money to get out from under the, the lockdown would be able to uh, do so more effectively. So you phase out the productivity taxes and you start with those who are most harmed. And you start with the taxes that are most counterproductive and you start with the taxes that are most regressive. Now, um, and then you got to increase other taxes. Well, if you're increasing land value tax, elderly people own a home, 
are going to have land value tax to pay. So you can have a per capita grant to people who are over 65 because higher wages aren't going to help them. They don't want to work anymore. Um, and you have targeted loan, loans to damaged firms. I would say to, to firms in a damaged sector, I don't know that you want to investigate each firm to see if they qualify, but you want to say, okay, you have a sit-down restaurant. Um, you get preferential loan treatment. And, um, and so how are we doing this? We're relieving, re relieving those who were harmed, charging those who benefited, and that's by taxing the people who cashed in on asset bubbles and stuff. Um, you fix the comorbidities, and, um, and so you have to ask yourself, well, who was the most harmed? Uh, the airlines, the travel industry, the sit-down restaurants, the private schools, because they didn't have tax money. To, they couldn't pay their teachers while they shut down. They just went, got hurt. Um, businesses that were closed, they, they were told they were non-essential. They tend to be small businesses. You know, the, a nursery in the neighborhood was closed because they said, well, gardening supplies and stuff, that's not essential. But Home Depot was still open because if your plumbing goes, you have to be able to buy plumbing. But Home Depot was selling nursing goods or nursery goods. And, and so you could go out and buy garden supplies. You just had to buy them at Home Depot. You couldn't buy them from the nursery. Um, and service businesses in general and um, businesses that rent and businesses that have debts to pay. Um, because when they were closed, they still had to pay the rent or, you know, the rent was not forgiven. The rent was delayed. So the, the landlords were told, you know, we expect you to not foreclose on this person, to not foreclose on the debt until the lockdown ends. But then when the lockdown ends, these people have to um, either pay it all off or, or, or make higher payments till they catch up. So they were they were hurt more than somebody who owned their own property free and clear. So then which taxes should we cut first? And that would be, um, you know, there are special taxes on airlines. There's ho hotel taxes are huge. And when we had conferences, we, we had places that had nine and 10 and Allegheny County, their combined sales tax and hotel tax was 14%. And so you want to help the, help the hotel taxes. You know, the government has this notion that we got to help people. We got to do things for them. And you can help them just as much by not doing things to them. And when times were good, we, we were um, taxing all these things, car rental taxes. Well, what a good notion that car rentals are, cars are rented by people from out of town, so they can't vote against you because they don't like the tax. So let's let's stick them with, let's like the Transylvania tax. You know, Count Dracul made his money um, collecting tribute from people who passed through, the word Transylvania means through the woods. Um, we tend to do that. We tend to think we can tax people who are just passing through and we love to do that. 
But those Hertz has gone bankrupt or is filed bankruptcy. Um, restaurants, you know, we most states do not tax food in their sales tax. Um, West Virginia does strangely, but you could exempt prepared food from the food tax too, and that would help the restaurants. And uh, I would mention that the notion is that richer people eat at restaurants, but homeless people eat at restaurants and people who are very poor and have a tiny kitchen and, and you know, don't have good, they don't have good kicking, cooking skills. Um, they eat at restaurants. And so, and eventually sales taxes generally, because sales taxes are re very regressive and very economically destructive. Um, a business that's struggling still has to overcome the cost of sales tax. He doesn't have a business that's not making much profit, doesn't pay income tax till he starts making a profit. So um, those, and payroll taxes, if you wanna get people working, nothing gets people working like cutting taxes on working. So you cut the employer's tax and you cut the employee's tax. And the employer, it's cheaper to hire a person. It doesn't really matter in, in terms of pure economics. It doesn't matter whether nominally the employer is paying the tax or the employee is paying the tax. But you have people with union contracts and stuff, and it, it would just be much easier if you reduced both equally and they don't have to renegotiate a contract. Um, so that's now with regard to airlines, some of this the airlines would love, like abolishing the airline taxes, but open bidding for time slots. Um, we have um, we have favored airlines get the best uh, the best landing times. They get the best uh, terminal spaces, and they have this relationship with the airport that makes them um, more profitable than their competitors. And, uh, and basically, if the, bidding, if the open bidding doesn't raise enough money, you fund the, air, the airport from land value tax. Because if you look at what happens to land values when an airport gets built or even when an airport gets expanded, the, the land values around the airport just skyrocket. And uh, on the highway to the airport, I've seen properties sell for more than a thousand times what they had sold for two years before the airport was announced. Um, and uh, we had US Air flew out of Pittsburgh and uh, US Air was about the most expensive airline in the business. And U.S. Air went bankrupt and everybody said, oh, what is, what's going to happen to air travel in Pittsburgh? Well, what happened was we got a whole bunch of discount airlines and, and quality airlines that, that uh, could get in and take advantage of those, those time slots and, and uh, terminal slots. The U.S. Air had monopolized and Pittsburgh's airport is doing much better without that sweetheart relationship with U.S. Air. But U.S. Air was a Pittsburgh company and they had a lot of political clout. So until they went bankrupt, we didn't have the nerve to fix that. Um, again, with hotels, um, hotel taxes, 
Um, I would exempt hotels from sales taxes. I would ev eventually abolish sales taxes. But in light of the, the devastation of the lockdown, I would focus on that first. Um, and the car rental taxes, um, every time you rent a car in, in Pittsburgh, it's a, there's a $2 tax. And the poor guys who have these rideshare options, you know, if three people rent the same car in a day, because it's one of those, um, you park it and you become a member and you, you go out and you rent the car and they, they get a $2 tax. They can get three or four $2 taxes in a day because of that uh, car rental tax. And so that's, that's another thing. And the sit down restaurant should be exempt from sales tax. Um, and the, again, you give low interest loans or preferential loans to struggling restaurants or restaurants that were closed by the lockdown. I mean, they still still have to have a good chance, you know, they still have to have a good chance of opening. So a private bank is still gonna evaluate them for the loan. But uh, we give preferential treatment to homeowners and that doesn't make as good of an economic sense. And then the question is who should pay? You know, who should pay more? And we ask, well, who benefited? And uh, this is basically, you know, landlords benefited. Well, we're gonna do land value tax. Uh, banks benefited. If we go to full reserve banking, uh, it, will, it will put an end to economic recessions generally because the federal government will lend the right amount of money to the banks for the banks to relend. In other words, if, they, if the Federal Reserve sees that there's inflation, they will say, okay, we're not gonna lend as much money to the banks or we're not gonna deficit spend as much. And um, the businesses that were allowed to stay open, well, I guess there's not much you can do about them. The vaccine makers profited like crazy and um, and the drive-up restaurants, you know, the restaurants with a drive-in window are, are selling faster than ever before. The lines, the lines at Arby's and Wendy's and McDonald's and Burger King are just annoyingly long. And, um, and they're just shoveling that food through as fast as they can. And I guess some restaurants that deliver are doing okay, but... Uh, but the ones where you sit down, they're, they're the ones getting hammered. So that's, that's um, basically what I have in mind. And uh, I went through so many things so quickly that there'll probably be questions. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.